you have your Bibles, turn to Lamentations chapter 5. Lamentations chapter 5. Children are dismissed to junior church. Lamentations chapter 5. Lamentations chapter 5. You see, we start off as children seeking recognition from those around us, do we not? Have you ever seen a child wanting mom or dad to see what they had just done? I think one of the most common phrases a parent hears from their children, hey, mom, dad, look at me. Look at me. And as a parent, sometimes we hear that five 10, 20 times in a matter of an hour as they're doing something that's very similar but slightly different and they want us to pay attention again. The truth is, when we age, we still find ourselves trapped by our desire to be wanted, to be recognized. One of our deepest struggles is found in our attempt to please God and wondering if He cares enough of what we're going through at that time through the valleys of life. Today we'll be looking at the final lament of the prophet Jeremiah, where he describes the physical or external and internal struggles of his people in their deciding that, you know what, recognition matters before God. They're seeking recognition from God who they assumed had now forgotten them in their hurt. There is so much to be learned, believer, from what we're going to deal with in the text this morning, that I want you and I to pay attention and be honest with ourselves. As we're going to be looking at two things. Number one, the external struggle, verses 1 through 14. And number two, the internal struggle, verses 15 through 18. Number one, the external struggle, verses 1 through 14. Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. We have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink and our wood comes at a price. They pursue at our heels. We labor and have no rest. We have given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of the famine. They ravaged the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands, and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones, boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate, and the young men from their music. You see, the truth here that we're dealing with is the anguish of a nation in turmoil is summarized in their desire for recognition once again. When the physical state or the external state of a person breaks down, they are left wondering if they'll ever be restored to full health again. The feeling of this closing lament is one of pleading for remembrance from God and what God has done to them during this time of judgment. And asking God to remember them once again. To remember the good days that they lived in. God, please recognize us again as one of your own. Because essentially what they were left with the impression was that God had abandoned them. 
And do we not go through the same struggle? Do we not go through the same struggle knowing that we're children of God, but feel like God has abandoned us? Believer, every time that you feel that way, I want you to understand more clearly than ever that it isn't God that abandoned you. It is you that abandoned Him. And as we look at these struggles that the people of Judah are facing, they're very deep and personal from a physical level. In fact, it's unavoidable to the naked eye. Anybody that's watching can observe what's going on with these people. The first one that we see here is the loss of wealth in verse 2. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. What was once theirs and their families was now someone else's. All their future dreams that they had saved up for, if you will, their retirement, if you will, the inheritance that they were going to pass on to their children was no longer theirs. I want you to feel the gravity of that, believer. Some of you are very good savers. Some of you are very good investors. Some of you are wise stewards of the money that God's given you. I want you to take everything that you've saved and picture yourself losing it all in a moment. All those years that you built up that nest egg, if you will, and built up that investment so that you would have something to pass to your children has now been taken away from you in a moment. I want you to picture that. I want you to feel the weight of this text when Israel, or Judah, if you will, is pleading with God to recognize them once again because the blessings of God had been stripped away. The invading armies took over whatever financial gains they had made over the years. You have to understand that this was something these people had built for years. And it was all taken away. It was given to someone else. It isn't just that their money was given to somebody else. It was given to their enemies. Let's make this a little more personal to us, right? Because, I don't know, we sing songs that say, you know, Lord, you keep me in the face of my enemies. I always ask myself, when people sing those songs, what do they refer to? Because I think we like kind of merge with David when we sing those songs and don't think through what we're singing. Lord, in the midst of my enemies, I want you to rescue me. Okay, like, put that into the modern context, please, now, believer. Who are your enemies? Are they some vague part of your imagination or something specific to you and me? Let's make it a little more personal here. Take the people that you can't stand the most that you know in your life and imagine in a moment that everything you worked and built for is now theirs. Imagine that swap instantly. The very people that have done you wrong over and over again in your life now own what you have. Would that hurt? That would hurt, wouldn't it? Now imagine them taking everything that you have and you've been left with nothing but serving them for free. On top of you actually giving everything away that you've had, they now own you, literally. You see, the next thing that we see here, though, 
which I think is even more devastating once we put ourselves in these people's shoes, is the loss of family. Verse 3, we have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. With the lack of food and water, their families are torn apart with brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers being separated and dying. They're dying a lot earlier than people anticipated. The surviving family members were left many times alone. I want you to picture this, parents. Your children are left to take care of things and you're gone. Almost the opposite of what we talked about the other week. The surviving family members were left many times alone. In fact, what's interesting is this text in the King James is actually easier to understand than the New King James. With the word waif. I'm sitting there going like, I don't ever use that word. What in the world is waif? Go to the King James, pretty clear. Fatherless, homeless, abandoned. Truth is, loss of family, I think, hits us the most immediate. And I know many of us right now are in different seasons regarding this. Some of us have already lost family. Some are about to lose family, and some have not yet lost family. And no matter what stage in life that you are, whatever season it is that you're going through, this hits home probably the most. Because outside of just losing your wealth, imagine losing the very provider for your family too, families. That life insurance policy is not in existence for your spouse. They're now left to try to pick up the pieces, and unfortunately picking up those pieces means they're not really going to be able to provide all that much because there's not much to really work off of. Another thing that these children of Judah went through, taxation of commodities. In verse 4, we pay for the water we drink and our wood comes at a price. Things that were never charged for and were essentially free were now being taxed. I always wonder sometimes when politicians come up with certain policies, if they go back to the Bible and see how they've done things. Because some things are very similar. They're starting to tax things that you would not even believe sometimes in countries and states. We're going to tax how much rainwater you have on the side of your house? Like, that's ridiculous. But this is a whole other level here, brother and sister. This is a destitute family now being pummeled on every side. Squeezed on everything that they had to survive with. And having to pay on what was normally free to them. Now, before you start going the extreme of taxation is theft, because I know some of you may go that route, realize that there's more than just taxes that were unjust here. There's an outright theft of everything these people had left. Everything they had left was now being taxed. Things that they had always been able to gather for free was now taxed. Here's another thing that these people went through is no time for rest. No time to rest. Verse 5. 
They pursue at our heels. We labor and have no rest. This is an endless pursuit of the people to the point of exhaustion. But sadly, there's not even a moment for them to think, oh, it's going to be over. My work will be done here in a little bit. Have you ever been overworked in a job? You ever work so many hours you're going, I can't do this much longer? Imagine your boss telling you, oh, there is no, no exit strategy. We're not telling you when you're leaving. You're staying here until we say. Well, most Americans will go, well, I'm out, I'm out the door. You're not going to tell me that. Imagine having no option. You have to stay, or it's your life. You won't see your kids again. Imagine working so hard that you want to rest, and you're told that to stay on the job, and there's no finish at all in mind. There's no termination point. Keep working. But I'm exhausted. Keep working. I take, can't take it anymore. Keep working. You want to talk about a breakdown. You ever have an exhaustion breakdown? Imagine everything being stripped. You have nothing to provide for. Someone makes you work, and you still, by working, don't get to do anything with it. You have no fruit of your labor, if you will. You're working for somebody else with nothing to show for your family. Here's a big one I think that matters to Americans. Loss of independence. In verse 6, we have given our hand to Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. When you have no income coming in, you start depending on the government to take care of you. I know we've heard this many times. But imagine having to rely on a government that, distaste, that has a disdain for you. And they will manipulate everything against you in order to squeeze whatever they can because they know you need food. Outside nations that were essentially taking care of them were just there essentially to squeeze out whatever they could. They weren't really trying to take care of them. This was an oppressive exchange only in favor of Egypt and Assyria. They were not friends seeking for a balanced exchange. This wasn't, you work this amount, I'll give you this amount. It's, you work this amount, I might give you some. Want to talk about justice? Independence is completely gone. There's a full dependence on someone else. And that someone else doesn't even love you at all. Doesn't even care about you at all. Would rather see you dead, but use you up before you go. Here's a big one. Generational consequences. Verse 7, our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. You see, there was a proverb that essentially stated that God was not fair in punishing the fathers not as severely as the children, or so it seemed. Now, there was, though there's actually truth to the family as a whole being affected by parents, 
It's usually because children take on a very similar approach to their parents and many times go further in the sin that they see. Whenever children or anybody wants to blame the previous generation, they need to understand how they arrive there. They need to be a little more honest. Well, you know, our parents didn't give me this. They didn't love me enough. They didn't do that. I saw them. They were like this. And then you grow up to be an adult, and what do you become? Have we all seen that for ourselves sometimes? Well, my mom, my dad, they were like this. I'll never be like them. Anybody quote that famous phrase? The one that's infamous to all of us? I will never be like them. Look in the mirror. How many of those qualities are you still seeing in yourself that you would prefer not to sometimes? Now, maybe some good things that our parents have done we've picked up on, which is good. But I, I'd be honest about this. I think... We've picked up a lot of bad habits that we don't want to admit to. Well, I'm a little more standoffish. Well, have you ever done this as a parent? And I'm, I'm, I'm pausing here for a moment to make a point here. Have you ever, as a parent, asked your children to do something you yourself don't have, com- com- you're not comfortable doing yourself? I know I've mentioned it before, but I'm going to be very, very practical on this. Have you ever tried to have your children work something out with their friends that they hurt? Like, you hurt Junior over there. Please apologize. Tell him you're sorry. And you have, like, a hard time telling that brother or sister that you did them wrong? Like, we ever do that as parents? Is that just something that doesn't jive so well for us? But, like, hey, we we tell our kids no problem. Like, hey, you better do that. You better say sorry. And we're like, eh, they understand. You know, I had a bad day. You give your kids that same pass? Well, sometimes I guess we do, right? When we tell them, oh, they didn't get their nap. That's why they're like this. Eh, grow up as adults, we still do it, right? We didn't get our naps, right? I'm cranky because I didn't sleep enough last night. To be honest. As Constable points out, the present generation of Judeans was bearing the punishment for the sins of their fathers who had long, died, who had long since died had initiated They had continued and increased the sins of their fathers. Jeremiah rejected the idea that God was punishing his generation solely because of the sins of former generations. You can see that in Jeremiah 31, 29 through 30. Truth is, what you and I tolerate as parents, our children may very well promote one day. What you tolerate in the home, what I tolerate in the home our children may very well promote one day. Don't be surprised that if we compromise in different areas, but we do the religious duties, going to church, reading, praying, that our children will still possibly pick up those areas of weakness that we have in the home. Those areas of weakness in our own convictions. You see, it's really astounding to see how many Christian parents are so shocked that their children, when they get older, end up the way they do. And instead of being a little more honest about how they contributed to that, many parents pivot to, well, they're adults to make their own choices. Yeah, there's some truth to that. But but let's be a little more honest. Like, what role did we play in all that? Or do we we not play any role whatsoever? All those years that God gave us responsibility, we get a pass on that. 
We need to put some of the blame on our own shoulders and what we've allowed into our own homes. Listen, church, legalism in some areas won't fix compromise in others. Let me repeat that. Legalism in some areas won't fix compromise in others. What do I mean by that? I know you've done this. I know I've done it. I won't let my children watch or listen to X. But I will let them watch and listen to Y because I liked it when I was growing up. You ever done that as a parent? Like you give yourself a pass for the things that you used to do. And so you let your kids listen to it or watch it. But you know full well that if something similar to that was played today, you'd be like, no, that's not good. Well, hypocrisy sometimes. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one that struggles with these things. But I noticed that. I have certain things that I listen to. I'm like, man, you know what? I was okay with me listening to this. Hey, kids, don't listen to that. Legalism in some ways does not absolve compromise in others. Because the truth is most Christians are legalistic in some areas. If they were to be honest. And they're very, very compromising in others. Sometimes we're just really good at convincing ourselves that we're the better parent that our brothers and sisters are. Do we not? All the while, we don't notice the areas of weakness and compromise that we've already let into our own homes. I have a struggle with this because I, I know that people come up to me sometimes and will ask, hey, Pastor, what do you think about this? And one of the dangers in being put, in the spot, put on the spot on that is because as soon as you give up, well, I think this is good or I think this is terrible, you almost by default have given a person a pass to either not do it or do it. And then what they do is extract from that everything else that they now will allow in their life or not allow in their life possibly. And there are things to wrestle with. The reason the church has the stance it has on many of the current social issues is because parents compromised in the previous generation. Well, you know, I don't want to tell my kid. I mean, I kind of slept around when I was younger. Can't say anything to them. Kind of wasn't living the upright life, so I probably shouldn't make this stance. Parent, there's no reason you and I have no right from Scripture to say what God says. You are not the standard. And unfortunately, a lot of parents parent based on themselves being the standard. Uh, remember this thing called grace that you're supposed to teach your kids? But we're so afraid of being judgy that we're like, oh, you know what? I'm going to avoid this. I don't want my kids to not like me. Or we kind of overdrive it. We come down with like a heavy hand, heavier than even God would on this. Like, how dare you do this? You embarrassed me and my family. You embarrassed all of us in our name. That's the other extreme that we as parents go to. There are things you need to stand firm on, believer, whether or not you are faithful in practicing those things in the past. Imagine Paul writing what he does to the church, and people are like, well, you know what, Paul, don't talk about all those things that you mentioned in the letters to the churches. Remember, after all, you killed Christians before you became one. How dare you tell me about all these other things? You're a murderer, Paul. That didn't stop Paul from proclaiming the truth of God's word. 
Because God, God is the standard, not Paul. And even when Paul says to exemplify him, he says, follow me as what? I follow Christ, because he's the example to follow at the end. Don't ever use past sinful behavior as an excuse to no longer stand on biblical principles. And I'm going to pause here for a moment and make a statement that I think I have to make as a pastor. Some of you have gotten very soft on certain sins because you have family members that struggle with those sins. Stop it! They need the truth from you and no more your garbage. They need to know that you care enough that they're going to hell. Not that you feel for them. And you feel sorry that they're going through things in their life only. There's eternity at stake. Yet we compromise. Well, I don't want to say anything that might hurt. What's better, a little hurt now or eternity in hell? You tell me. People should, as Spurgeon says, we should be literally having people walk over our bodies on their way to hell because we want them to be in heaven. We just want to be liked. Speaking of recognition, we want them to approve of us. Ask yourself, who, are you, who do you care more for the approval of? God or other people? And be honest with yourself on that. Somebody is like, I care what God thinks. Do you really? Then why are you compromising all the time? Why am I compromising all the time? Why do I care so much about this congregant or that congregant, how they're going to approach me on this when I make it this point over here? Hey, folks, let me be a little more transparent with you. I, as a pastor, seek recognition. I want to be recognized. I want people to care about what I want. And it's sinful. And it comes from a selfish, carnal heart. They could care less about the people of God, but what I want and my status. You think I don't struggle with this? You think I don't struggle with the fact that other pastors seem to have bigger ministries? You don't think I break in my heart sometimes of how carnal I really am? I'm made of the same things you are. And the things that I'm confronting you with, I'm confronting myself with. Because I have family that struggles in areas that I've been a little more soft with myself. Because I don't want to sever the relationship. I don't want to be super careful to the point where I have nothing that I offend them with anymore. Some of you know this is true. You were a lot more bold years ago. You and I are wimps now. The only thing you'll stand up for and I'll stand up for is politics now. Trump! Who cares? If Jesus is the most important thing in your life, why is he not a priority in how you speak to others? Just because you had a past, which, let me pause for a moment, remind us all we all had one. We all have one. And uh, let me remind you again, you will have one. You can't erase it. Just because you had a sinful past doesn't excuse you from living as God wants you to today and proclaiming the truths that he has in his word. But brother or sister, you don't know what I went through. Read the Bible. You want to see plenty of flawed folks? Look in the word. Be honest with yourself. 
We are to change and conform to God's word, not twist it to conform to our personal experiences. Listen, believer, one of the most dangerous things that you and I can do is change God's word to conform to our experience. I see this all the time when people talk about marriage, when they talk about dating, when they talk about how to parent. Well, I did it this way and it worked out because, you know, my experience is this and then my parents did it this way. You know what? At the end of the day, experiences are good and they're fine, but they're not God's word. And you might want to direct people back to God's word rather than your own personal experience. If we were going off of experience, we'd never have an objective truth that we could go off of anymore. Did you know that? It would all be subjective. Well, I feel that that's okay, you know. Which is where a lot of churches are today. God's word isn't the standard. It's what we feel in our culture. Which is why it's amazing when you see the degradation of of society, you see the things that we tolerate today, we didn't tolerate 10 years ago, we didn't tolerate 20 years ago, and you're seeing it spiral out of control, and people are like, well, I didn't know that, but no way would I ever stand for pedophilia. The very people that are saying that right now will eventually be okay with it in a few years. Because when you use the argument, love is love, you really can mesh a lot of things with that. I mean, the, the, the statement itself is so bold, right? Two consenting adults that people use that argument, right? Two consenting adults. What in the world can that open the door to? Think about it. This is how depraved we are as a society. Israel and Judah both thought that they were just fine in their consequences and compromises. Consequences were severe, though, leading, including the loss of life and hardship for those that were still alive. Think about it for a moment. You're a person in Judah that's seeing everything you've ever worked for taken away. Your family members have just died. And you look at Jeremiah, who's been weeping for a long time, warning you. Will it hit home at this point? Uh, he was right. Maybe those other prophets I was listening to that were telling me how wonderful I was, they weren't telling me the truth. Uh, they're, they're in trouble themselves. Some of them have been killed. Some of them have put their, had their eyes put out. They're literally physically blind now. And I thought they were telling me the truth. Listen, believer, the people around you that God places in your life that you only have the immediate effect on that others in this church may not, they need you to stand on truth. They don't need the compromising you. They need you to be faithful. And that means that when you do mess up, when you do sin, which you will, let's just be honest, we will, that you own it. And you don't go, well, you know what, I screwed up, I shouldn't say anything anymore. That is no excuse. That is no excuse for you and I not to share God's word. Else you might as well quit parenting if that's your approach. Well, you know, I blew it the first couple years with my kids. I might as well quit now. Think of how you're coming across to people. Oh, you know what? I'm bailing now. What happened to what Paul said, right? Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto you're also called. Some of us as Christians have kind of given up the fight. For lack of a better word, choked. Eh, it's too much. 
The other part that was devastating to these people was that they were ruled by slaves in verse 8. Servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. You see, Judah was brought so low that slaves of other nations were now ruling over them. The lowest of the low in other nations was now head over them. They did not just lose their independence. They had slaves from other nations overseeing them in their duty. Here's the big one here. Dangerous existence, verses 9 through, 9, 9 through 14. Things that are mentioned here. Bread was rationed. And even when they went through the wilderness to find some sustenance, they were endangered by the heat and possibly being plundered or killed. Their skin was scorched with a fever. They were desperate for help. Their people were humiliated from women being abused to men being tortured and killed by those who held high positions. To boys becoming essentially slaves to those in authority, falling under the pressure, not able to move, and still dragged to their death. The older wise elders were no longer able to share their wisdom at the gate. And here's the big one that America would really be shocked by. All their entertainment was gone. The music stopped. You know that escape that many of us have when it comes to music? Imagine that being taken away. Yeah, you know, I'm feeling rough today. Let me put on a tune, right? Let me turn something on that'll make me feel a little better. That's taken away. There's no celebration. There's no music that's played in the street anymore. There's not even old men to talk to, to glean wisdom from. You see, right now we dwell in relative safety here in America, do we not? But to know the reality of war like these people we've only seen on the big screen. You've only seen this in movies. You and I have personally never experienced what these people have experienced. We've read books. We've watched movies. We've never personally experienced what these people went through. Unfortunately for many in America, we're not ready for something like this. We've already seen how divided we've become as a nation, have we not? Over the past few years, arguing over how to best deal with the pandemic, right? There's all sorts of debates over that. We can't even come to a conclusion on it. Which, unfortunately, we don't even know the origin of, or we don't want to be honest about it. Oh, let's go to the root of the problem. Where did it all begin? Ah, nobody needs to know. That's going to cause too much controversy. We've seen how easily we turned on one another to preserve our own well-being. Without even giving others the benefit of the doubt with their position. Whichever side of the argument they fell on. And it really is amazing to me that in some cases the pandemic was the best thing that happened to certain people. And in some cases, the pandemic was the worst thing that could happen to people. For some people, they reset in areas that they needed to before God and others. 
For others, it literally created even a greater wedge between people. It almost had the opposite effect. You would think that having not seen family for so long, some people would have desired, wanted that. Some people have become so embittered that they are glad they don't get to see their family anymore. I don't want to see them again. I know what they thought during the pandemic, and I don't agree with them. Truth is, we were told what to believe, and we followed orders, many of us, to the neglect of our families and fellow Americans. Our nation, with the reality of a pandemic, still refused to turn back to God. You would think with all the fear being pushed in media, the one thing that people would be like, you know what, I need to go back to church. I need to go back and get things right with God. Unfortunately, and some people may disagree with me on it, we offered a solution that doesn't save. Because the truth is, even if you prolong this life, it doesn't help for eternity. It doesn't matter whether you're using therapeutics or the vaccine. It doesn't matter. Instead of turning back to God, we sought to preserve this life as long as possible. You see, many of the physical struggles were clearly visible to those observing what happened to the people of Judah. But the more important one for all of us to look at is the internal struggle, as in Jeremiah's case. Number two, internal struggle, verses 15 through 18. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. First thing we see here from an internal standpoint is that joy turns to sorrow. Verse 15. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. Jerusalem had so much to be proud of before they were invaded. They were safe. Or so they thought. I think we have that same problem. We think we're safe. What's going on in Ukraine doesn't really pertain to us. We're safe. America. Ain't anything going to happen like it's going on in Ukraine for us. No way. You think with that pride, God can't humble us one day? The excitement they had as people turned to utter sorrow. As they saw everything they thought was secure taken away. Listen, church member, I need you to pay attention to what you find secure in your life. And I want you to think through that. What do you find security in many times that you really don't realize could be pulled from you at any moment? A lot of the things that we find security in are really our little idols that we don't admit to. And for some of us as parents, it's our kids. Like we don't know life without them. And so when that idol fails us, our whole world falls apart. 
Your security should never be found in your family. Spouse, your security should be found in your spouse. Your security shouldn't be found even in your church. Your security should be found in God alone. He's the only one that is absolutely secure. Everyone in here will fail you. What a shock. Come be a member of the church where we're all hypocrites. And let's be honest. God saves us. He delivers us. He sanctifies us. And he will one day glorify us. Let's stop pretending that we're so much more dependable than our brother or sister in the church sometimes. When the only dependability that we have that's absolute is found in God's word and God's word alone. We're fickle. We'll fail each other multiple times in a day. You ever done that with your kids, parents? You tell your kids, I'm not going to do that again. I'm sorry, dad messed up. And then like literally an hour later, you did the same thing. Now you're like, should I even say sorry again? Should I even own it again? I just told them I wasn't going to do it. I think one of the most devastating things that parents do to their kids is promising them something that they can't deliver on. We need to be careful. We're to reflect our Heavenly Father. Usually the physical appearance of a person is really a reflection of the inward. Although both play a role on the other, do they not? When a person gets bad news about a diagnosis, the internal struggle really begins at that moment. Before that, they thought they were fine, right? And then the doctor did an analysis and said, hey, wait a second, something's wrong. Something's going on. This isn't right. There's something that you need to pay attention to that you didn't notice before. You're in danger of X. That's when the real internal struggle begins, is it not? When the person was operating originally under a different perspective. And the truth is, many of us are always operating under a different perspective than what Scripture clearly states. That's one of the reasons why many Christians think they're just fine and what they don't see growing underneath the surface is absolute damage that's about to wreak havoc in their lives. And we're quick to go, you know what? Look at that. Look at the danger they're about to be in. Have you ever done that? Looked at something that is coming for somebody else and not realize that you have your own things that are coming to get you? I think one of the dangers that married couples in the church have is looking at other married couples and thinking that they're going to do fine and that other couple is about to blow it. Take heed. Every one of us in here is absolutely able to fall. Do not assume that you are safe and I'm safe. Which is why you need to cling on to Jesus a lot more than you and I do. Stop clinging to your performance because your performance is terrible. And you and I know it. When we've experienced devastation in our lives, we find ourselves wondering whether God has failed us. 
whether he even cares that we're going through the mess that we're in. Now, we've all experienced this, have we not? What you thought would be a good call was the worst news you could have gotten on that phone call. You thought it was a good call, and it was some of the most devastating news you could imagine. Maybe you were having a great day, everything seemed to be going perfect, and you found out something tragic happened to a family member or friend. That fun tune you had playing in your car, you shut off. You didn't want to listen to anything anymore. You were just still. Because your whole world just got rocked. I'm be perfectly honest with you, church. There are certain things in my life I remember distinctly because of how much of an impact it had on me that I didn't even realize until I look back. One of the greatest, I would say, impactful moments, I should say, in my ministry here was having taken over as pastor and shortly after having to do Sean's funeral service, memorial service here. And then, with the pandemic starting, I still remember this in my office, just for hours, finding out that Rick had passed. Gushing. My tears just couldn't stop. Working on a sermon for that Sunday and not knowing how I'm going to preach. Because I want to be faithful to the text and my heart is just wrecked, completely wrecked. And church, we don't value one another the way we ought to. We don't care enough about people until it's too late. Which is why I'm saying what I said earlier, we need to care enough for people that we know that are on their way to hell because that may be that person that you probably should and I should take more time to pray for, take more time to talk to. Don't ever use God's sovereignty as an excuse to no longer care for people. Don't. God works all things, absolutely. But he calls us in command to pray for others that they be saved. It's his desire. And what a shame for many of us that believe the sovereign grace of God that we don't value enough to tell them about the grace of God. God's grace is so amazing in my life, I'm not going to share it with you. How ridiculous does that sound? Why would you want to keep it to yourself? There's so much that we're not aware of with that diagnosis or that terrible call we might have had that day. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went on. We saw reality for what it is. That person was gone. We'll never be able to talk to them on this side of eternity again. When reality hit, we were left broken and mourning. This is what happened to these people. Reality hit. It was no longer hypothetical that judgment was going to be here. They saw it for themselves. The excitement was gone. The next thing internally that they realized is the realization of sin. 
It wasn't enough to see the brokenness and feeling the hurt and not wanting to sing anymore. No more music in the streets. They came to the realization of sin, verses 16 through 18. You see, unfortunately, so many today are just like the children of Judah. Thinking they've got it all figured out when it comes to this life. They'll time things the way they want in life. No one's going to tell them when they'll retire. No one's going to tell them how much money they'll have saved. No one's going to tell them where they're going to live. How much time they'll have with their kids. The truth is, we don't know that. We don't know what we have. We don't know when it's going to be gone. Which is why church humility is so important today. Listen, you know what the best way to prepare for tragedy in life is? Be humble today. Don't wait for that moment to hit you for it to humble you. Humble yourself today. Because many Christians do not understand, and we for some reason don't learn this lesson. Every time we live in pride, God will eventually humble us. Take the time today to connect with others. Don't wait to do it when it's too late. I was really encouraged. I had a conversation with somebody the other week, and they've got things going on in their life, and they have a family member that will be passing soon. One of the greatest encouragements for me as a pastor is this following phrase that they said, I don't regret the amount of time I got to spend with them. It was great. May it be that way for all of us. That we don't regret the amount of time we got to spend with others. Don't wait for your children to become teenagers before you start caring, parents. Humble yourself today. Oh, your children are very well aware you didn't do everything right. Just as your parents are very well aware they didn't do everything right. But you know what your children need to see is humility. Not a, eh, we'll be fine, we'll work it out. One of the worst strategies for parenting is what I hear in the world all the time, and sadly it comes into the church. It'll all work itself out. That is not the way to parent. Care about your children today, not just when they become older or when they're out of the house. And you regret that you didn't deal with it earlier. Own that sin today that you think is not that big of a deal. Parents, we need to be honest enough before our children to repent in areas that we have failed God and them. And sometimes it goes beyond crying a few tears, but really taking the time before God and saying, God, change this in my life. I'm so short with my kids. Father, change this in my heart. I'm so passive on things that you say, things that clearly in your word say I need to be doing. Look, you're going to fall in one of those two spheres. Some of us are a lot more aggressive types. Some of us are very passive. Both types of men are in the Bible. You'll see them over and over again. It's amazing how aggressive David was in some areas and then completely passive in raising his kids. 
man of God. Sorrowing out of regret is much worse than sorrowing out of repentance, believer. Let me say that again. Sorrowing out of regret is much worse than sorrowing out of repentance. Many people wait till it's too late to then cry those tears. Here's the truth. One hurts, the other restores. When you and I cry tears of repentance, that's restorative in our life. Don't ever shame someone for repenting before God, believer. Don't become the publican in people's lives. Well, God, I thank you that I'm not like brother and sister so-and-so, and I live a much better life. Look at how stupid and foolish they are with their money. Look at how horrible they are in their family. Look at all the things they're getting wrong. God, I'm special. Humble yourself. If it wasn't for the grace of God, you wouldn't have what you have. Stop taking all the credit. We should never judge another believer who sorrows for sin that they've genuinely repented of. Listen, I want to pause for a moment and make this statement. I know we're going a little bit time over the time normally today. Do not take the approach with other people that you know their heart when they're sorrowful. I know we like to judge others pretty harshly and give ourselves a pass when we repent. Be a little more honest that you don't know a person's condition, and God does. So when someone's repenting and crying, and they really want to turn back to God, don't assume, ah, they're fake again. Because the truth is, as we said the other day, do we not have sometimes a false repentance? Or a pretense in our own repentance. And I think if we're being honest, we know that that's true. Because many of our repentance is very short-lived. Oh God, I will never do this. <laughs> you do it tomorrow. Great job. You lasted one day. There's always plenty of sorrow when it comes to regret in our lives. Which is why it's important when God gives you the opportunity to repent, you take it that day. There are things right now that if you and I repented of, God would not come down with a judgment or chastening later on in, in our lives. If we took the time today to take things seriously that he calls sin, years down the road, we wouldn't have to reap what we've sown in those areas. Jeremiah, along with the people of Judah, realized that it was their sin that caused their downfall. It's time that we realize that we need to be careful as well before it's too late. There is a termination to long-suffering, believer. There always is. Even in God's calling, you and me, there is a termination in this life. You, don't, you and I don't get a pass. Their sin caused their heart to faint, which is something many of us who are, to be a little more honest with ourselves, when we're depressed... I want to stop for a moment and make this quick, quick statement. When we're depressed, many times the reason we're depressed is because we have sin we refuse to deal with. And that unworthiness that creeps up is because of who we are and what we've done many times. It doesn't come out of nowhere. There's usually an attachment to that depression. It doesn't stand on its own. 
And if you're trying to deal with certain things in your life without dealing with the root cause of that, you will continually keep dealing with them. It amazes me how many Christians want help with depression without reading God's Word. It's not a possibility. You will never find encouragement apart from God's Word as a believer. Let me put it this way. If you do, it's not going to sustain you. It'll be a temporary fix. Unfortunately, many of us feel self-pity for ourselves rather than honest self-introspection. The reason you and I are miserable many times is because we have unresolved sin that we refuse to deal with. We refuse to deal with it. Everybody else needs to deal with their sin. I'm not. I'm owed a happy life. Even though I disregard many of the things God's Word says. Notice that I didn't say always, but many times. I don't want you to get the wrong impression here that every time depression's in your life, that it's over sin. Sometimes it's just straight up the enemy getting a hold of you and trying to bring you down. And invalidating what you have secure in Christ. There's a grudge we're holding to that we pretended went away. Some of us are still wrestling with that. We just don't want to admit it. There's a foolish decision we made financially that we're paying for right now, and we see it every month. We're struggling right now. There's a wrong heart behind an attempt to please God that we wonder why it doesn't produce the fruit that we want in our lives. You realize that sometimes the things that you do in order to try to get blessing from God are for the wrong reasons? They're wrong. You're doing it so you're it's easier for you this next week. You ever done that with your Bible reading? Ever done that? I'm going to read the Bible so I feel a little better today. I felt horrible yesterday, didn't read the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible so I feel a little better. You've never done that? I've done it. Oh, I'm going to pray today, right? I'm going to pray because I didn't really pray enough yesterday, so I'm going to do that. What did we do it for? For us, right? We didn't do it for wanting a close relationship with God. Familiarity with God is not equal intimacy with God, believer. Just because you're familiar with the text doesn't mean you really are intimate with God. Oh, yeah, I know what God's Word says on this. You do. Congratulations. You've graduated a status Pharisee. Now take that knowledge that you've learned and apply it, as James says, and be a doer of the Word. And you'll no longer be in that category. I'm someone that's just gleaning a bunch of stuff and never doing with it, anything with it. The reality is we, just like the prophet, want recognition, do we not? We just want to be known. We want people to notice. We want God to notice. Does anybody care? So in conclusion, here's the piercing question I want you to ask yourself. Why are you seeking recognition? Why are you seeking recognition? Why am am I seeking recognition in my life? This goes to the heart of the matter. Do you care to be recognized by God because of how you were feeling apart from Him or because you pursue and want Him? When you want recognition from God, is it because you're desperate for your own self to be recognized or because you really want Him back? 
You want Him in your life. And we get this wrong, do we not? We want God for us, not us for God. Which is why I think sometimes when we quote those verses, if God be for us, who can be against us, we don't take the whole context into account. The fact that Paul builds all these arguments with phrases like, to the praise of His glorious grace, we're accepted in the beloved. Wanting to know, be known by God while refusing to get to know Him is essentially telling Him only His side of the relationship matters. God, if you could just know me better, if you could just realize that I'm in this mess, I'd really appreciate it. I don't want to do anything different. I just need you to recognize my existence. We don't go to the root of our problems, which is sin against Him and why we are distant, which is why there is a break in fellowship. Ask yourself this question, why do you want God to take your side of a dispute that you have with another person? Why is it that whenever we have a conflict between us and someone else, we think God needs to take our side? Like, are we always the more holy and spiritual one in that matter? Like, God's on team me. Are you longing to be more like Christ or just to be vindicated when you have tension between you and someone else? Are you seeking for someone to say sorry to you or do you care to make things right? Why do you want to blame others and play the self-pity game for how you're dealing with in your own family, parents? Don't go blaming Hollywood for what happens in your home sometimes. You know, it's easy to blame Disney, right? Look at how corrupt they are. Look at all the things they're doing. Well, parents, you have the, you know, the remote at home. You can unsubscribe instead of even having to deal with some of it. If that's such a big issue in the home, we can do that. We have attention here, though, right? We, you know, but Old Yeller's pretty good. This other show, no. We have to wrestle with that. We want God to help us with our consequences, but refuse to deal with the sin that got us there. Maybe you seek to take God's glory away when you seek recognition from others in an attempt to feel validated by Him. We seek others to tell us we're doing just fine, and we give ourselves a pass knowing what God has called us to do in our own lives. In closing, I want to kind of finish with a few things and we're done. I want you to pay attention to how you view others' profiles on Facebook when you see what they're going through. Is your response a gracious response, praying for them? Or is your default heart many times is like, oh, they had it coming, they deserve that. I could have seen that miles away. That was a train wreck ready to happen. Maybe you're just the type that says, I'm glad that wasn't me, and you move on. The truth is, we are in Christ and are recognized as part of the family of God, and if we are not, then we aren't. You need to know Christ in order to be a part of His family.
That is the first and most important step. You cannot ask for recognition from God if you don't recognize His Son. If you do not recognize Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you cannot ask for God to recognize you as one of His own. There's nothing we can do but simply come and save in faith to Him, knowing that He saves. We know that Jesus paid for our sins, the ones that we still commit today. But He's taken away that eternal punishment for those. Believer, I want you to be reminded that the consequences in this life are still very much real, and they still apply to you. Even if you are a follower of Christ. And I need you to understand that. Don't walk around waving your you know, fire insurance. I'm not in hell. I can just do whatever I want. It's not true. So instead of constantly needing self-recognition, let's put it where it belongs, on Christ and recognize the extraordinary grace He's bestowed on us.